we'll make a start and we will be looking again at Deuteronomy chapter 23, just a few of the verses which we looked at last week. I don't know whether you realise it or not, but the 22nd of April was Earth Day. Earth Day. And I, I was amazed actually when I saw this article here. More than 6 million Canadians joined 500 million people in over 180 countries in staging events and projects to address local environmental issues. And that's all to do with a thing called Earth Day. Nearly every child in school in Canada takes part in an Earth Day activity. And the idea of Earth Day goes back to 1962 when an American senator called Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin convinced that environmental issues needed greater exposure. He suggested originally to President Kennedy that he embark on a national conservation tour. And the following year Kennedy did this but no one really took any great interest in it. But it has developed and this year is the uh, 40th, I think, the 40th anniversary of Earth Day. And it's one of these ultra-environmental ideas. And it's gaining a lot of uh, credence uh, throughout the world. And it's all very pagan. People have said various things and blamed various things about the environment. And because they come out with these uh, amazing suggestions, for instance, warming may trigger agricultural collapse, global warming. Global warming, fish stocks could collapse because of global warming. And all these various things, and you know, there are people who, who, who blame all the allergies that children are getting now on global warming and all to do with this Earth Day. Uh, if you've got a problem, one chap says, blame global warming from allergies to maple syrup shortages to yellow fever. Apparently every contemporary ill is caused by climate change. But the people at the back of these things, they are serious in their uh, suggestions about global warming. Someone has listed all these pseudo-problems attributed to global warming. And the list that they have come out with, from things like kidney stones, inflation in China, invasions of jellyfish and giant oysters, uh, fish getting lost, all these whales and things, who are uh, losing their way. They blame it on the global warming. Uh, conflict with Russia. Sour grapes and stronger wine. Farms going under and farms uh, getting greater production. All to do with global warming. But there's a much more serious thing at the back of it all. Here's some of the comments that people have made regarding Earth Day and the thing called the Earth Day Network. 
on religion. No new set of basic values has been accepted in our society to displace those of Christianity. Hence, we shall continue to have a worsening ecologic crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence save to serve man. Here's another one. Both our present science and our present technology are so tinctured with orthodox Christian arrogance toward nature that no solution for our ecologic crisis can be expected from them alone. Since the roots of our trouble are so largely religious, the remedy must also be essentially religious, whether we call it that or not. And then regarding population, they're, they're very uh, severe on population. Here's just, freedom to breed is intolerable. Here's another one. No technical solution can rescue us from the misery of overpopulation. Freedom to breed will bring ruin to all. The only way we can preserve and nurture other and more precious freedoms is by relinquishing the freedom to breed. Here's another one. It is sinful for anybody to have more than two children. And so on. It has long since become glaringly evident that unless the Earth's cancerous growth of population can be halted, all other problems poverty, war, racial strife, uninhabitable cities and the rest are beyond solution. And then of course they, they're all about Mother Earth. Mother Earth and they say that she is mad. Gaia is mad. And if we don't correct our mistakes, if we don't change our values, our behaviours, our ethics and beliefs, Mother Earth is going to take matters into her own hands. And this is the current philosophy fad. Human beings, the theory goes, are a blight. And Gaia is going to cleanse herself unless we become good global citizens and respect the universal mother. And the Dalai Lama, he says, until now, Mother Earth has somehow tolerated sloppy house habits. But now human use, population and technology have reached that certain stage where Mother Earth no longer accepts our presence with silence. In many ways she is now telling us, my children are behaving badly. She is warning us that there are limits to our actions. Here are a couple of other quotes on that same line. The reasons why there are so many natural disasters and severe weather changes is because Mother Earth is angry with the people. And you know, this whole thing started out as something which would be uh, very anti-religious and anti-Christian. But now they realize that they have to bring in all these religious people into the fold. And for 2009, that's for this year, the Earth Day Network is kicking off their Green Generation campaign. Uh, 
which seeks to engage students, churches and communities in pressuring the world to adopt a new global climate treaty. This campaign is, continue, is stated to continue until 2010 when it is expected that the world will witness a massive Earth celebration, the 40th anniversary of Earth Day. And here's what I was saying, paradoxically, what originally started out as a movement to intentionally place Earth on a pedestal while demonising Christianity, nationalism and human populations, all focused on driving America's youth to a pagan socialist utopia. But they now have changed that and have, it's been embraced by churches. Lots of churches now are embracing Earth Day. By hosting and supporting Earth-centred and interfaith services, churches actually contribute to the systemic attack on biblical values. And Mother Earth, it says, must be smiling. It's amazing all these things that are taking place and we are, in some senses, not aware of them at all. We need to be very careful. Well, let's get back to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and just a couple of verses. Reading from uh, verse... 3 uh, and we'll read 3 to 5 just an Amorite an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when ye came forth out of Egypt. And because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor, of Pathor, of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. What a wonderful uh, thing. The Lord thy God loved thee. The Lord thy God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for the world. Now, following on from last week, and the qualifications for being admitted to the congregation of the Lord, or the great congregation, we'll now look at two or three individuals who, although apparently excluded as we read those verses there, from admittance into the great congregation, they did in fact become acceptable. And the first one we look at is Ruth. Turn to Ruth, the book of Ruth, and we'll look at Ruth. Now I'm sure we're all familiar with the story of Ruth, but it's about a family this family lived when the judges ruled and there was a famine in the land. Of course the famine really came about because of the sin of Israel. 
And God permitted, it would appear at this particular time, the, God permitted the Moabites to uh, rule over the children of Israel. Things had become very bad when these people who were excluded from all the blessings of Israel were in fact now ruling in Israel. And there was this family, a man called Elimelech and his wife Naomi, and they had two sons called Mahlon and Chilion. And they lived in the land of Israel. But the famine was sore in the land. And so they decided that they would go to Moab. And this, you know, in, in itself was, was, was wrong. Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. My God is king. And yet he was prepared to forget all the teachings and the laws of God that the Moabite was not to be in the congregation of, and to go and live in the land of Moab. Naomi was his wife and she was, her name means, it's always interesting to look at the names of some of these people. Well, her name meant my delight. One day when she was born, she must have given great delight to her mother and father and they called her Naomi. My delight. Lovely name to be called. But the strange thing about the two children, Mahlon means sick sick. Now, I can never think why you would want to call your son sick. And the other fellow, he was called Chilean, and his name means pining. And there must have been some reason why they, they call these two boys by these names. And there was famine, as I say, through the sin of Israel. God permitted the Moabites to control Israel. And it seems to me there was a lack of faith with Elimelech. And he decided to go to a land whose people were excluded from admittance to the great congregation. And you know, they weren't there very long when disaster struck. Elimelech died. The two sons married Moabites, <coughs> which was not the right thing to do either. Because they were their wives were going to be excluded from the congregation. But in any case, they married the one married Orpa and the other married a girl called Ruth. <coughs> and Ruth means friendship, which is nice. And for the next ten years things went on okay, but soon after that, Mahlon and Chilean both died leaving their mother Naomi a widow with two Moabite daughters-in-law. And then in verse 6 of chapter 1, she arose with her daughters-in-law. She decided, she heard that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. And so she decided she would go back to Israel. Back to her homeland. And Naomi. So told her daughters-in-law. What she was going to do. 
And in verse 11, in chapter 1, you'll see she says, now, they wanted to go with her. She kissed them goodbye, and she said, I'm going. And they pleaded with her, they lifted up their voices and cried, and they said, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. But, you know, there was a custom that if, the, if, if Naomi had other sons that eventually they would marry uh, Na- uh, Ruth and Orpah but she explains that she was old she hadn't got a husband it, they wouldn't uh, they shouldn't have to wait for her to have other children and all the rest of it and she persuaded them or at least she tried to persuade them to stay in their own land she says turn again my daughters why will you go with me are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Now that's interesting. The hand of the Lord is gone out against me. We'll we'll touch on that a bit in a moment. They lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clave unto her. What a wonderful thing. And she said, and we've, we all know this verse probably off by heart. Before that, Naomi said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people, unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Look, your sister-in-law has gone back. She's gone back to her people. She's gone back to her gods. Her idols. And now we come to the important part of this story. Ruth answered her in verse 16. Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Listen to this. Thy people shall be my people and thy God my God. Where thou diest I will die and there will I be buried. And the Lord do so to me and more also if aught but death part thee and me. She loved her mother-in-law. When Naomi saw that Ruth was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left off speech. She gave up and accepted the fact that Ruth was going to come with her. And here again, she heads off and they arrive back in Israel. They came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved 
about them. And they said, is this Naomi? And look at her answer. She said unto them, call me not Naomi. Call me not pleasant. Call me not my delight. Why? Call me Mara. Bitter. She was bitter. Why? For Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Twice we see there that she complained that God had dealt bitterly with her. Isn't it strange how most people blame God for their problems? She had left the promised land. God had provided them with a land flowing with milk and honey. Even though her husband's name meant God is king, he was prepared to leave the land that God had given them. Go to a foreign land whose people were excluded from the congregation of Israel. Her sons had married into these people. And she blames God for her problems. It was all his fault. And you know that's the way it is today. You talk to people. How often they blame God for the troubles in the world. They blame God for their problems. They exclude God from their lives. But yet God is the one to blame. We hear it all the time. Now the important thing about this story is that Ruth had learned about the, the, the God of Israel. Maybe through her mother-in-law, maybe through her, her husband, we're not sure. But she was determined to follow the God of Israel. Thy God shall be my God. And Naomi realized that she was steadfastly set on following the God of Israel. And that's the secret of this whole story. We know the story. She obviously had learned about the right to glean in the fields. And when they arrived and they had nothing to support them, she went out to glean in the fields. Now we could learn a whole lot, a great deal from this story, but not at this time. Sufficient to skip to verse um, 13. Let me see. Verse 13 of chapter 4. A lot happened in between, but uh, she had gone to glean in the field of a man called Boaz. And he had dealt very kindly with her. And they had fallen in love. And if you look at verse 13 of the last chapter, we'll see the result of all this. So Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. 
And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name. Saying, there is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. And this is the exciting bit of this whole story. His name is Obed. And Obed, he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then they go on in verse 18 and it says who these generations were. We won't have to name them all. But all those generations there, we'll read just the last verse 25. And Solomon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Now, if we go right over to Matthew chapter 1, this is the interesting bit. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. And Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab, or Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David, and so on, on right down to verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called the Christ. What an interesting end to this story. This Moabite, who had married one of Naomi's sons, is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because she said, Thy God shall be my God. She put her faith and trust in the God of Israel. The mother of Boaz, interesting enough, also is interesting. Because there was a man called Salmon here. And Salmon married Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. And Rahab, the harlot, was Boaz his mother that incredible that this girl who, who took the, 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 the spies in and hid them she became the mother of Boaz and Boaz became the father through Ruth of Obed and eventually of David and they both appear in the genealogy of our Lord. Why? Why? Because it says in Deuteronomy. They're not to be allowed into the congregation. But because they put their faith and trust in the God of Israel. Thy God shall be my God. And she was steadfastly minded to keep that. And that's one wonderful example. Of how these people who were excluded 
by faith and trust in God, by the way we come into the church of God, the same way, through faith and trust in the God and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come by faith and trust into the fellowship and assembly of God. They came into that assembly, the great congregation, through faith and trust. That's the way it was. Let's turn now to Jeremiah 37. Another one. Another type of person. If we look back to Deuteronomy 23 just for a moment. It says those who, were, who, who have been affected in their private parts shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Always. Let's look at Jeremiah 37. We have to do a little background again of this story. Jeremiah was not popular with various princes and leaders in Israel because he was prophesying the word of the Lord that there would not be peace and prosperity but that there would be a time of captivity and not peace. And it's not what the people wanted to hear. The people didn't want to hear this. And you know, Nebuchadnezzar came and he had besieged Jerusalem. We come to a man who was king and he's called Zedekiah. Zedekiah, strangely enough, there were two or three kings at this time and they were all sons of Josiah. Now Josiah was one of the better kings, one of the best kings in Judah. But his sons did evil in the sight of the Lord. And this man Zedekiah was a son of Josiah and he did evil. And it was in his reign that the final captivity of Israel to Babylon took place. Zedekiah took a softer line with Jeremiah than the two preceding kings had done. He came in chapter 37 and in verse 6 we see that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel. Thus shall ye say to the king of Judah that sent you unto me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which is come forth to help you, shall return to Egypt into their own land. And the Chaldeans shall come again and fight against this city and take it and burn it with fire. Thus saith the Lord, Deceive not yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans shall surely depart from us, for they shall not depart. And the king came to Jeremiah and asked him, You know, what's going to happen? 
What's the situation? And he actually requested prayer from Jeremiah. Asked him if he would pray for Israel. You see, what happened? Egypt had attacked parts of Nebuchadnezzar's land. And Nebuchadnezzar took the siege away from Jerusalem for a short time. And everyone thought that this was the peace that they were looking for. But the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, No, they've they've gone away, but they'll come back again. And he says... For though he had smitten the whole army of the Chaldeans that fight against you, and there remained but wounded men among them, yet should they rise up every man in his tent and burn this city with fire. God was determined that destruction and disaster was coming against Jerusalem. And so they... The the armies moved away for a while. And during this temporary relief of Jerusalem. Jeremiah decided that he would try and slip out. And get to Benjamin. To get away from these people that were persecuting him. Because they they wanted to, to kill him. The princes in Israel... Uh, wanted to have Jeremiah killed. But Zedekiah was not just uh, inclined that way. And Jeremiah was slipping out of the city and the captain saw him and accused him of going out to the Chaldeans, being a traitor. And he arrested him and imprisoned him. Jeremiah was in prison for quite a few days. Then the king heard about it. And he sent for him and took him out of the prison. And then the king said, Tell me, what have I to do in order to have peace? And in verses 18 to 20, we have what Jeremiah had said to Zedekiah. And he says, what have I offended thee? Have I done anything wrong that you put me in prison? And he says, where are all the prophets that prophesied unto you, saying, the king of Babylon shall not come against you, nor against this land? Because all the false prophets had been saying there was going to be peace peace and Jeremiah had to keep saying there was not going to be peace and now he's saying to the king of Babylon where are all the prophets that you had and you listened to saying that there would be peace and that Nebuchadnezzar would not come against this land so he says now I hear thee listen to this oh my lord the king let my supplication I pray thee be accepted before thee that thou cause me not to return to the house of Jonathan the scribe lest I die there 
He said, I have spoken the truth. Why have you done this to me? And he pleaded for mercy from the king. And the king provided some respite for Jeremiah. He took him up into the court of the prison, which was a better place to be, and he said that he was to have a daily supply of bread out of the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. He was always to have something to eat. But you know, <clears throat> the princess heard that Jeremiah was not in prison or not in the dungeons that they had placed him in. And they demanded his death. They said, we beseech thee, let this man be put to death. In chapter 38. For thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in this city. He says, they said, because he's always telling us that this city is going to be burnt and it's going to be a disaster. He's, he's weakening the resolve of the men in the city. It's better if he was put to death. Zedekiah showed how weak he was in verse 5 of chapter 38. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand. For the king is not he that can do anything against you. And so they took Jeremiah and they threw him down into what was a like a cistern that the water had gone out of it but at the bottom it was all miry and they threw him into the, the dungeon. There was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank into the mire. And now we come to the interesting part of the story. There was a man called Ebed-Melech. He was an Ethiopian. He was one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house. It just shows you how, how far Israel had gone away from the laws of God. Not only were they uh, straying away from the, the laws, but they had these eunuchs actually working and employed by the king himself. Going straight, uh, straight against the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 23 but this man he obviously had heard about Jeremiah he knew about Jeremiah and he heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon and he went to the king and said to the king Jeremiah shouldn't be in there I want to get him out the king gave him permission to go and he went and got some ropes and he got some old cloth and uh, rags and he went down to where Jeremiah was with a few other men and they threw the cloth down and the ropes to put under his arms so that it wouldn't hurt him. And he put the cloth under his arms and put the ropes under his arms and they dragged Jeremiah up out of the dungeon. And 
that is not the last, thankfully, we hear about this man, Ebed Melech. Amazing that this man who was excluded from the congregation of Israel should have had this uh, love and desire to help uh, Jeremiah. We all know, of course, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar did come back and he surrounded the city. And we need to go to chapter 39 and the last few verses of chapter 39 to see what happened to Ebed-Melech. We know that Jeremiah, was his life was spared by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and then in verse uh, 15. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison. Go and speak to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian. Ethiopian eunuch, don't forget. Saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil, and not for good. And they shall be accomplished in that day before thee. Just reinforcing the fact that Jerusalem was going to be uh, destroyed. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord. For thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. These princes would have had their knife in Ebed-Melech if they had the chance. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prey unto thee. Because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. His life was spared. Why? Because he had put his trust in the Lord. Another man, who although he was a eunuch, although he was apparently barred from the congregation of Israel, God saying that I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. Those two people, Ruth, who was a Moabite, she appeared in the congregation, in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this man, Ebed-Melech the eunuch, and he was brought into freedom because he had put his trust in the Lord. And finally, one more. We again have another Ethiopian eunuch in the New Testament. In the story in Acts 8.34. We know that Philip was holding a revival 
and he was taken away from the revival out into the desert and he met this Ethiopian uh, eunuch as he travelled from Jerusalem back home and he'd, he'd, he'd got a copy of the scriptures and he was reading in Isaiah and he asked he, uh, Philip about uh, the prophet Isaiah who he was speaking about and Philip explained that he was speaking about the Lord Jesus who was who, who had come and who had died and who had risen again and the eunuch answered Philip and said I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet of himself or of some other man then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus and as they went on their way they came unto a certain water and the eunuch said see here is water what doth hinder me to be baptized and Philip said if thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest and he said I believe that Jesus is the son of God and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Another wonderful uh, story about a eunuch who was brought into the family of God brought into the church of God how through faith and trust in the living God and so we see that although the general rule was that for those who were practicing uh, these heathen practices for those who were still prepared to carry out these acts of immorality and uh, other things who were prepared to worship their own gods we don't hear anything about Orpah she went back to her own gods but for those who were prepared to follow the God of Israel as it is today for those who are prepared to leave the God of this world and to follow the God of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ, we still have salvation by faith. The just shall live by faith.